Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Excuse me, may I have some more? We are the Foodcast with an Insatiable Appetite. Hi, my name is Brad Kramer. I am joined by my co-host, Christine Struble. Hey, Christine. Hello, Brad. How are you today? Um, I'm actually really good. Um, and, and that'll segue into why I'm good. Um, as if this were, we're going to treat this as if this were an episode of Sesame Street from when our kids were growing up. Um, today's number. Wait, there's, oh, there's numbers. I thought you were going to say we had cookies. No, we're, we're, this is a number, number, uh, related thing. Today's okay. number is 13. Um, we are recording this on Friday, the 13th, and this is our 13th episode of this food cast. So Do, is there spooky music? Is like Jason going to come out from Camp Crystal Lake? And bring me, I don't know, a beer on a platter. So now I have to go hunting for the, one of my clips to insert there. <laughs> I grew up with a mother who was as superstitious as you could possibly be, including a fear of the number 13. And then my firstborn was born on the 13th and that changed my view of the number forever and ever. So today being Friday the 13th, this being our 13th episode, to me, those are all good things and bring good luck. But that leads me to ask you, do you suffer from triskaidekaphobia? Are you fearful of the number 13? I am fearful of you asking me how to spell that word. Just yeah, I can't even pronounce it, um, let alone spell it. No, I, I don't have a fear of the number 13. I don't think I've ever stayed on a floor of a hotel that is the number 13, although I think some hotels now have them. Yes. Except for you go to Vegas. I know there's definitely not, uh, those are avoided there. But no, I, I, I take it as an excuse to watch some bad horror movies and uh, drink red wine. Okay. Or, or today it's National Prosecco Day, so bubbles. And have your bubbles started yet? No, not yet. But no. they will. Maybe if I'm lucky. Okay. So going to good luck and bad luck and the fact that this is Friday the 13th, and last night, 
um, the Field of Dreams baseball game featured for people who attended the game as one of the items in the concession, Guy Fieri's apple pie hot dog. Now, before you defend the item and Guy Fieri, just from the looks of the photographs I've seen, the descriptions of the item, and in spite of the fact that I love hot dogs and I love apple pie, I'm here to say that the mayor of Flavortown should be recalled. Well, he did admit when he talked to me that he flinched a little when they brought up this idea. So before going into what the dish is, and and yes, I've had it and made it myself. Um, the step back is the MLB Field of Dreams game was sponsored by Chevrolet. So the collaboration with Fieri and um, the special menu item came out of a 1970s commercial, Chevy's, Chevy commercial that was about apple pie, hot dogs, baseball, baseball, and Chevrolet. Chevy. So no, come on, going, I want to hear you say the full word Chevrolet. No, I, I'm not saying it. I, it sounds like I've been drinking and I really haven't. You, uh-huh. you messed, you tricked me by using that official word for, yes, thank you. See, now I'm all tongue tied the rest of this discussion. Um, anyhow, it goes back Chevrolet. <laughs> well, I'm sure you can go and find the jingle on YouTube to insert now <laughs> and everyone can hear it. America, what do you love best? Baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet. What was that again? We love baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet. Oh. Baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet. That's baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet, huh? a cute little commercial and an idea and that's where it stemmed from kind of coming up with this idea can you really put all of those iconic all-american things into a single bite and guess what guy did it um for him it was important for it to be a handheld i it would have been nice maybe if you could put it on a stick but there was no that didn't happen and it definitely isn't taking and apple pie and putting some hot dog pieces in it. There was some thoughts involved. Even if people go, oh my God, what the heck were you thinking? One easy way to kind of segue to the idea is a lot of people like pork chops and applesauce. It's an iconic combination. When you think about it, that's kind of the basis of where you start. So the apple pie hot dog is... Uh, a flaky pastry crust. Can I interject here for a second? Yeah. You made it, you wrote about it, you interviewed Guy and chatted about it. Mm -hmm. I haven't done any of the above and all I've seen is your pictures and other pictures. That item looks like somebody took a McDonald's hot apple pie and violated it with a hot dog. Well, I, I mean, there is a little bit, I, I, I will admit, it does kind of look like that. And, that. and that's the whole concept. I mean, it is basically putting a hot dog. There is, you know, the hot dog part of, you've got a hot dog. You've got some apple pie filling. You have a really good bacon jam. I will say the, the thing that kind of helps it is the bacon jam and the apple mustard. So, um, Check, you know, please. I mean, 
the apple mustard is something to really steal to put on a pork chop. I'll, I'll be honest on that one. Um, apple pie filling and mustard in a blender, put it on a pork chop. I think you got a winner. Um, as for the rest of it, really, it, it's a sweet, salty, savory bite. And winner, winner, chumming poisoning dinner. <laughs> no, I, well, okay. How many people like a hot pocket? Um, anybody who's run out of ramen in their pantry. Well, that's a whole different subject that we can talk about ramen right now. But, okay, so, you know, we all can recall the Jim Gaffigan Hot Pockets jokes. But if you like something wrapped in a pastry crust that is a combination of sweet and savory, what's not worth trying? Trust me, I've had a lot worse, a lot worse. But in the grand scheme of things, it works. Okay. Although Are it for would, me to, to argue or disagree because I have not tasted it. I, I I'm say, certainly not running in my kitchen to experiment either. It, if I did it again, I would probably swap out a hot dog for like a really good bratwurst. And I think that would be even better. So you're playing in the pork element now because of the app, pork chops and applesauce. Hey, mom. <laughs> Hi, Alice. Wash for dinner. Pork chops. Pork chops. Huh? What else? Applesauce? Pork chops and applesauce. That's swell. One of the other things that I can't help but think about as we celebrate our 13th episode on Friday the 13th, and again, to me, it's a good luck thing, is the fact, and I don't think we've talked about this, or if we have, it hasn't been in length. We are lucky enough, I believe, to have a really cool theme song for this foodcast. Um, I get a lot of comments from people. I hear that it's catchy. I hear that um, it's fun and enjoyable and a great way to kick off the show and the instrumental part end the show. As good as it is, though, in my mind, and I am a, a child of, you know, sitcom 70s and the 80s and TV theme songs when they were still a thing, there is no more catchy theme song and no better theme song on television today than the song that accompanies Phil Rosenthal's Somebody Feed Phil. And to that end, I wanted to bring him up because... He, uh, Phil Rosenthal is heading back out on the road shortly, uh, I guess within a week or two to shoot season five or six of Somebody Feed Phil for Netflix. And I had the opportunity to talk to him before he headed on the road, which was fun. And I, I hope to follow that up after he has shot seasons five and six. But before we get to that interview and play, share that theme song with people by a uh, uh, his theme song is done by a group called Lake Street Dive. That's just phenomenal. I, it's catchy. I'm curious because you are of my same generation. Do you have a thing for theme songs? Do you have thoughts on our theme song or the Somebody Feed Phil theme song? Just a little musical sidetrack here. You know, I, I can't really think of good food theme songs off the top of my head. I mean, I can think of commercials, but not for like ones that involve TV shows. Can you, and like Top Chef doesn't necessarily have one. No. And I don't, I don't think like Nailed It does or Triple D, any of those. I don't think they have. Yeah, it's not a thing. It's more instrumental. 
Yeah, I don't think they do. And maybe it's because they they can't... I mean, we all know phrases from TV shows, but not necessarily music. So, I mean, you think about it. Iron Chef was always a la cuisine. Triple D's go to Flavortown. Top Chef is pack your knives. Um, we can, you know, all do that. But I can't necessarily think of a m- music that is always associated with them. Oh, and it's interesting. When I talked to Phil for the first time in early 2020, before season three of Somebody Feed Phil drops, dropped, we talked about theme songs. And one of the things he mentioned to me was when he first met with Netflix about doing the show, Netflix asked, you know, is there anything you want to do? What do you want to do? And one of the important things to him was the inclusion of a theme song. And again, he is of our generation before the networks took away those 30 seconds before a show and eliminated theme songs before series television. And it's become almost an identifier for somebody feed Phil. And we talked about that and its importance. And when we decided to do this food cast, I set out to see if we could have something accompanying this show. And my daughter wrote the words and had uh, somebody compose the music. And I just, it, it adds something to a production. And I think that's probably a generational thing. If you ask somebody, a millennial who didn't grow up with theme music before shows, they, eh, they could care less, but um, I think it's important. I think it adds something. Sure. Um, what Monday night football has their theme music. Sunday night football has their theme music, yep. but it, even so like other stuff that you see on a daily basis, maybe it's because everyone when they're streaming something hits that, skip now. We don't want to watch the credits. We don't want to, you know, just get to the part we, we, we need to move forward. We don't have time, which is unfortunate. There, there are certain aspects to having that, you know, commutative movement of everyone knowing from, Hey, we don't need Shazam to tell us what we're listening to. We know it because it's ingrained in our head. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's changed, unfortunately. I do want to play the uh, Somebody Feed Phil theme song um, leading into the interview with Phil. But before we run that interview, um, I'm going to get on my soapbox because I feel really strongly about this, especially the last 18 to 20 months with what we have been going through globally in our country, illness and shutdowns and COVID and everything. Um, if you are listening to this foodcast and you have not watched Somebody Feed Phil on Netflix, I urge you to do so. There is something about Phil Rosenthal and something about this show that just oozes joy in a way that can change the trajectory of one's day if you're having a bad day or if you're down or you're tired of being locked in the house or tired of the delta variant starting to affect people again this man and we already knew he was a comedic genius based on the success of uh everybody loves raymond and that's a a scripted show and we i talk about that with phil if you want to get lost and immerse yourself in a show that will absolutely 100 percent with metaphysical certitude, make you feel better and make you smile, make you laugh, make you feel, um, connect you to not only food because it is a food show, but a travel show 
It is a people show. It is a relationship show. To me, this is the quintessential food television show that is not a competition show. And I can't rave about it anymore. I can't rave about Phil anymore and what he's able to produce. And I know that was a, a long-winded soliloquy about the show and about Phil Rosenthal, but um, I, I feel really strongly that way. Let's take a listen to the theme song to from Somebody Feed Phil, his Netflix show, and my recent conversation with him um, about heading out for seasons five and six and much, much more. asking you about the process of making the proverbial sausage. And yeah. the way I wanted to do that was I'm fascinated by this and I hope people who listen to this podcast will be. Um, you've achieved tremendous success creating wildly popular scripted and unscripted television. So I was hoping you could talk about your approach to both and share if you have a preference for one over the other. I always think there's two kinds of anything, good and bad. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm a fan of anything good. Uh, and, and there's so much bad in the world that when you stumble upon something good, you treasure it. So, for instance, when I was doing Raymond, I just felt like we it wasn't like hitting the jackpot. It was like hitting the jackpot over and over and over again, because, you know, for one of these things to even get on the air, for them to even make the pilot after reading hundreds of scripts and they choose a few to make a pilot and see which ones of those will get on for the season and for it to last the season and then for it to last beyond the season and then for it to win anything. And then for it to, you know, enter the zeitgeist and to be part of, you know, sitcom history. This is uh, absolutely. Uh, uh, why am I so lucky? Why do I get to live this dream? Right. That's how I feel. And that's how I felt at the time. So I can't say I like one more than the other, I think we all like to be successful at whatever we try, right? So when that happens, and it doesn't happen often, you treasure it like, like crazy. If you're talking about the difference between scripted and unscripted, scripted is, I'm going to say, a little harder because you have to pre-think, think a lot, execute, do it, remember it. You know, it's like a, it's, it's scripted. You have to come up with something uh, and, and then execute it well. Uh, luckily, you have help, but it's certainly the more difficult. I don't think uh, a lot of people stay up till three in the morning in the unscripted world worrying about what the scene is going to be. They may, they may worry about other things. They may be in editing. They may be other restrictions, but there's not that pressure to literally come up with scripts, dialogue, scenarios for this week's show. Right. When we do Somebody Feed Phil, we do a lot of research. 
It's all, you know, it's as scripted as it can be, meaning I know where we're going to go. I know who we're going to meet for the most part. Some things are left, though, as surprises to me. Some things I've learned from doing this when uh, uh, some of our best stuff happens on the fly. Some of it is completely uh, unprepared. None of it is scripted. Not one bit of it is, you know, now say this. But even beyond that, you've got to have room in your life, let alone your vacation, for serendipity. So we don't over plan it. It's the opposite of scripted. Right. Right. Uh, this what I mean by it's as scripted as it, as it can be is we have a pretty rough outline of where we're going and what the activities will be. They can be chucked at any moment. They right. can be chucked because the guy didn't show up. The place is cold. It's raining. It's whatever it is. You have to pivot. Uh, we shoot more than we need. And then we cut down to, you know, everybody says it looks like you, you eat so much and you don't gain any weight. Yes. Because <laughs> what you're seeing is the magic of television. You're seeing a week's worth of me eating right. condensed into less than an hour. So yes, I look like a pig. Yes. <laughs> the other secret is I don't finish anything. I can't. If I want to taste everything, how could I finish it? I only finish if it's, the most delicious thing I ever had. And I know I'll, it'll be a long time before I can get back to Chiang Mai and this shack where they have the world's best cow soy. Right. So I ate two full bowls, first the chicken and then the beef. I ate the whole thing. So what I find interesting about that is you talk about the scripted being more difficult. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry for getting in the weeds here, but I oh, find please. it fascinating. Yeah. Um, with scripted, you sit down and you write the words, you do yeah. the table read, you do the rehearsals, yeah. you tweak it. Yeah. And on uh, somebody feeds meticulous. Phil, it's meticulous work. Right. And obviously you don't have the kind of feedback and the kind of success unless the written product. You know, I, I talk Lily, Aaron Sorkin is Aaron Sorkin's a brilliant writer, regardless of what else he does. So in your case, if you don't write brilliance for Raymond, everything else falls short. When you're doing somebody feed Phil, being unscripted, you need to be funny spontaneously, and you don't get to do the table read. So I'm I'm fascinated by the fact that you consider the scripted to be more difficult because it would seem the pressure would be more intense on you for somebody feed Phil. I studied theater in school. I was a little kid. All I wanted to do was make people laugh, and so I thought. I was in and I was encouraged to do so. So I, I in high school, I was a big star. And in college, I was a big star at, uh, in the theater department. Right. I thought I was going to be a character actor. Hofstra's I best. thought that's Hofstra University. Yeah. yeah. And I thought that's what that's that was going to be me. And then New York City had another plan for me. <laughs> they didn't care that I was a big star in college and high school. That's New York. And so I beat my head against the wall and tried, you know, to get acting work. And some friends of mine wrote a show for ourselves to be in. And that was successful. And it's just the old lesson of you got to literally write your own ticket. Right. Right. Nobody's handing them out on the corner. Your ticket. You have to make it yourself. And uh, that's what happened. And, And another friend of mine came to my house with a word processor 
word processor. He asked me if I'd like to write a screenplay. I said, I had no idea how to do that, but we did it and we sold it to HBO. And suddenly I went from eating tuna fish for dinner as an actor to being a writer and eating whatever I wanted. Right. So that decision was made for me. I, I would have been stupid not to abandon acting. Right. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's like, uh, you can't fire me, I quit. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Nobody yeah. wanted me, so it was easy to abandon. And uh, I guess I've always been a bit of a ham in that I love performing. I love actually every aspect of show business. I really do. Right. I love writing, directing, producing, editing, acting. Yes, it's fun. All, every aspect of show business I love, except the business. I hate the business of show business. Right. But unfortunately, that's, the, that's what you have to deal with. Right. No matter whether you're scripted or unscripted. Well, it's funny because my next question sort of ties into the periphery of the business. When you and I spoke last May, right before season three dropped, yeah. you, you emphatically agreed with my contention that somebody feed Phil should not be binge watched. And you, you got on top of the table and wholeheartedly agreed with my belief that it's better enjoyed slowly and incrementally. Um, now that the show is the success that it is, and Netflix has ordered two more seasons, five and six, does that give you any leverage to push for them to take a different tact and drop one episode a week, like traditional television, you know, Raymond every week, something like that? Or do you have to drop them all at once when you drop them? Netflix drops everything at once. And I've asked before and they said, okay. this is just how we do it. I will ask again. <laughs> uh, by the way, I'm watching shows now. I think on Apple and HBO that do it one at a time. I think so does are, Disney Plus. Yes. This, I think they're scripted. But I just I just think there are benefits to this commercially. One is if you drop it all at once, you get the publicity of it coming probably for a day or two. Right. And then they're on to the next thing. But that's Netflix anyway, right? New, yeah. new, 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 new. That's what they do. If you're having a new show every week, that means every week you can publicize and every week you can, you know, someone new can discover it. Now, they would probably argue, yeah, we have people discovering it, you know, years later. doesn't matter. They don't care. They, they're happy with the, the, I'm sure, by the way, if the computer told them that there was more business in doing it once a week, I'm sure they would do. It. Right. The computer is watching us. The computer, they know way more about you than you know about them. Right. They know everything. They know what time you watched, when, what word you shut it off on, right? Yep. The modern and day Nielsen. They know that some people just like the show on in the background, like, uh, like wallpaper. Right. Right. And those shows are valuable to them as well in a different way. They know that people are looking at their phones more than they're watching. Right. And, and so that their shows just for these people. That are that are just on in the back. So when you're texting your friends and they ask, what are you doing? You said they say they're watching so and so. Right. I don't want to be one of those shows. I want your full attention, please. I put a lot of work and effort and my heart and soul into these shows, even though they look like I'm just having fun. Right. Uh, that's part of the point. And I would think leave them wanting more. It's like, yeah. oh, I watched a new episode of Somebody Feed Phil tonight, and damn, I can't wait until next Friday night where I can watch another one. 
I get DMs. Let's say the show drops on midnight on whatever day. Right. 6 a.m. I watch the whole series. Yeah. I, they DM me. Okay. What do you remember? Uh, I like the theme song. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of, let's say, Mississippi Delta savoring every element of that episode, talking about it with your friends, sharing it with your friends, they seek it out and they watch that particular episode. And then you're waiting for the next one a week later. I, I just, I don't get it. People think we go out with a camera and as long as it takes you to watch it, that's how long it took us to make it. Right. <laughs> right. They don't understand. It takes months. Research, flying there, staying there, filming one, maybe two scenes a day. Right. Right. Editing, uh, color correction, all this stuff, all that. Like we care about every shot. We care about every, you know, word that goes in it. Right. Yep. Now, uh, the editing is how you make an unscripted show. It's all in the editing. What you leave out is just as important as what you leave in. And I have the luxury of writing my narration afterwards so that when I see a theme starting to emerge in the show, which is not preordained, which is not like I may go in with a preconception about a place. But of course, the place and my experience is going to dictate what I want to say about the, the place in the show. And then I write that. Well, here's what, like the, the, you know, the bad version is, here's what I learned. Right. Right. But that is, you know, I'm showing I'm that every show is designed to make a particular point. It's about something. So to that point, as you have filmed prior seasons. Yeah. Has there ever been a meal or a food that you didn't enjoy that wound up on the cutting room floor? simply for that fact, not because you didn't get the right shot or the lighting was bad or the person that you were interacting with was, wasn't as outgoing and bubbly, but I just didn't enjoy that dish. I didn't enjoy that meal. I didn't enjoy that restaurant. Let's just leave it on the floor. Absolutely. Every single episode. Oh, okay. Every single episode. Now there are also scenes that were perfectly good that we left out for time only. And those shows are, uh, those scenes are bonus scenes and we put them on our YouTube channel, right? But the ones where, you know, it wasn't the best thing I ever had. It wasn't, you know, we weren't, the scene wasn't clicking. It just wasn't as good as the other stuff that we have. That's why you film for a week. So that you have lots of choice. So speaking of the cutting room floor, floor, I would think that you, have an abundance of footage that would make for a great bloopers or outtakes episode of the show. uh, You would think that, but we keep the bloopers in the show. Okay. I am the blooper. (laughs) This is, I want it to feel that way. Right. That you're seeing the mistakes, you're seeing the real, you see when I can't pronounce something, you know, We'll show you the, 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 here's the five times I tried to say it <laughs> and I couldn't. We think that's not only funny, but it makes it real. And, exactly. and you trust this guy. You, you're, there's no acting in the show. Right. The stuff that you're referring to that we leave on the cutting room floor is just a little more boring than the other stuff. Right. If something funny happened, it's I'd put it in. Okay. That's all I, well, that's rule number one is, is this entertaining? Rule number two, is it so fascinating 
that we must include it, right? That you never saw anything so cool or interesting, right? And number three is, is it beautiful? Okay, so it has to meet one of those criteria. And then the overarching criteria on everything, does it fit with our theme? Does it fit with the story we're trying to tell about this place? Right now, within that, there can be lots of diversity. We want there to be lots of diversity. You know, everything from hot to cold to to Asian food to uh, African American food to to Mexican food. We want this very broad. But that is the point that the joy in life is not just tolerating other cultures, but celebrating. Right. So, uh, springing off of that comment. One of the things that is important to you about the show, and you talked about it with me, and I've seen you talk about it with others, is the joy you get out of sharing a table with new and old friends alike and making new friends around the world and always have, if you go back to a city, I have friends there now. So I'm curious if you could handpick a group of living people that you have not shared a meal with yet, who would they be? Wow. Wow. Sorry. <laughs> oh, I, you know, I'm thinking of my idols right off the top of my head, but sometimes like I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan. Right. Okay. And I've, I've had the honor of meeting him several times. I have very little to say to Bruce Springsteen. I turn into Chris Farley. Oh, remember when you <laughs> did Born to Run? That yeah. was great. <laughs> what am I going to say to him? I mean, could I get into an in-depth? Would I like to have that kind of relationship where I could say, you know, ask him technical questions about songs and stuff yeah but i don't think he'd enjoy it right he probably he probably gets that a lot in other words i would like a shortcut where he's my best friend (laughs) and he wants to be my best friend, right and food could be the bridge yes but he doesn't need me as a best friend he's plenty of friends (laughs) you know there's 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 idols of mine great funny people but i i have to be honest i've gotten to meet a lot of these people and i do go eat with them I'm very satisfied with my list. Oh, you know what happened last night? I, uh, uh, I got to go out. Uh, we, showed, we showed we had movie nights. And, and I showed uh, Summer of Soul. Okay. Have you seen that documentary yet? No, I have not. It was I, the, I, I'm allowed 15 minutes into it. Oh, and, you are? Yeah. So you know what it is? Oh, yeah, absolutely. This wonderful, this wonderful for people don't, don't know. They called it the Black Woodstock. It was yeah. happening... Uh, you know, at the, around the same time as Woodstock. And it was all the great black artists of, of America, like, like Stevie Wonder and uh, the Fifth Dimension. So yes. Fifth Dimension was the first concert I ever saw when I was 12 years old. I saw them at Carnegie Hall in 1972. Yes. And I just loved them. I had all their records and I just loved them. Well, I invited the producer to come to the movie night and he came and I said, if there's anyone from the movie, he says, I'll invite Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr. Uh, from the Fifth Dimension. They couldn't come, but they said, we like his show. We could have, we'd love to have dinner. We live in, in California. We live in Los Angeles. Right. Last night, my wife and I went out with them. And if you look at my Instagram story, the picture is there with them. Oh, okay. That's a must. Because I love them and that, that's exciting. Not only were they sweet and great, but we just happened to get along as friends. And we were sitting in the restaurant for three and a half hours. And now we're friends. What this restaurant? Is, 
Republic. Oh, okay. One of the best in the country, yeah, I think. Yeah. And did they exceed your? Of course. Okay. Because you expect them to be pleasant, but you never know. Maybe there'll be those awkward silences. Maybe you don't see eye to eye on politics, let's say, or something else, or, you know, or they think of us as, you know, just fans or something. But when you have this mutual admiration, that's a shortcut. You know, the, the show, my show, both Raymond and this have been this kind of beautiful uh, calling card where people already know you, especially with, uh, with seeing me in the, in somebody feed Phil, there's an, uh, 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 I guess I seem accessible because people have no compunction about coming over and saying hi. And I love it. Right. I love it. That's the high school kid who, who's getting, you know, look, I'm famous. <laughs> I used to walk down the streets. I used to walk down the hall in, in high school after we'd done a show, you know, that weekend and, and, and wait for people to tell me they liked it. It was pathetic because I was a little skinny, nothing. And I had no girlfriend. I had no, you know, it was my only way in. Right. I don't know if uh, you've heard this story before in show business, why people get into it, but yes, especially comedy. So for me, and by the way, people are so, I wish I have that, by the way, the perfect level of fame. I wish this on everybody right now. My, my level of fame is just right. Once, maybe twice a day, somebody stops me and says they like what I do. Everyone should have that. You know, I don't have it in my house, but I have it. <laughs> Everyone should have it. Never, It's never in the house. I imagine because you have achieved that perfect level that you just talked about, that yeah. Marilyn and Billy last night didn't tell you that you didn't have to be a star baby to be in their show. <laughs> I want her, I just wanted to sing uh, Wedding Bell Blues, but put Phil instead of Bill. <laughs> there you go. As you prepare to head out to shoot seasons five and six, which... A week or two ago, you said you're doing in a few weeks. Yeah. How has a global pandemic affected or altered which destinations you'll be visiting? Well, I'm not allowed to tell you where I'm going. I know. But, I, and I didn't ask it that way. Yeah. No, no, no. I know. But uh, it has changed. For instance, I think it's fair to say, even though we were planning some Asian cities, those are off limits right now. And we don't know when they'll be on limits. Okay. And I'm a little nervous, to be honest, because I don't know even our American cities what's happening. Look what's happening right now as of this taping. Yep. We have no idea. The restaurants are opening. Restaurants are saying don't come in without a vaccination. People are wearing masks. People are against wearing masks. People are weak. And, and you see the, the numbers are starting to climb again. So God knows what is out there and what I'm going to find. I want to do the show the way I do the show, right. hugging people, seeing their faces, right? right? Uh, what will be different? Maybe that I do most of it outside. I don't think that'll change the feeling of the show. I just, uh, if we don't have to wear masks, uh, I'm not going to, I'm vaccinated. I'm trusting everybody that I talk to will be pre-screened and vaccinated. Uh, it might not have the sheer spontaneity that the show has had, meaning indoors, if we were at a bar, I'd turn to whoever and talk to them. Maybe I'm not doing that scene. 
But if I'm in an outdoor venue, I'm doing it. Right. So it won't be that different, I hope. But the cities may close and our international locations may suddenly say, oh, you can't come in without a quarantine. We can't afford to do that. We right. can't afford to stay two weeks and not filming in a hotel locked up. Can't do it. Now, will so you be shooting go. seasons five and six through this whole block or are you doing one season at a time? We planned to shoot it all in one block. But to be honest, a few of the locations are up in the air right now. So we may have to pause, wait, see what happens, and then film the rest. But we have enough time because usually Netflix doesn't put all 10 on right. in a row. So there's time. We'll, we'll get five or six done, and they can have those, and that'll be season five. And then season six comes when it's ready. When you tweeted out the other day about Sherry Herring yeah. opening in New York City, yeah, it got me thinking that you are basically the global version of Jonathan Gold, where you introduce people that would not otherwise be introduced to the unknown brilliance of a, a little restaurant here and there. You're quoted in, I mean, you're cited in the story. You're, somebody feed fellow cited in the story announcing this. How does it feel for you when you hear that a place that you took us to as viewers in Tel Aviv is coming stateside and opening in New York City, and then you're you're given a little credit for it in the in the article announcing it? Nothing makes me happier. That that and the DMs I get from people who say they took a vacation because of the show, right. that they went where we went and and they had a wonderful time. That well, you can't buy that feeling. Right? I think, and so I take my responsibility very seriously. If I'm going to tout something on the show, uh, I'm putting I'm putting my uh, word out there. This is what I think. I've got, I always say this is the best. This is the best. It's not the best. Obviously, it's what I think is the best, and I'm just one schmo, right? But I think if if a place that I tout gets so popular that it can now open another one. And other people can experience a thing. It must not just be me thinking that. Right. And, and to not have to travel overseas, there's an immediacy to it, which is great. I can't wait to go to New York and have that, that again. That's outstanding. Have you had it? No. I, I, I grew up with pickled herring at my kitchen table. And this my is not table. that. It's crazy how good it is. Okay. It's, cra- it's one of the more delicious sandwiches in the world. and. Here's how we know that this is not just a scene in the show. The whole crew says, when can we go back? Can we go back before we go, go to the airport? Can we stop at Cherry Herring and get that sandwich again? And I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So what was the sandwich? It's a herring sandwich. There's creme fraiche. There's some, some, some peppers uh, on there, seasoning on the freshest, you know, kind of baguette. Right. It, it, you, it's the freshest, cleanest tasting, most delicious thing. They also, they give you a shot of, uh, of, of vodka. Ah, that so that's makes like, a little better. That's, that's like going to Sammy's Romanian with the, uh, right, that's right. The frozen bottles of, you vodka. got it. When I wrote a piece in, including our interview a year ago, I referred yeah. to you as the Pied Piper of prosciutto. <laughs> I love it. And so telling the Sherry Herring story and the fact yeah. that they're opening here and, and, leading people to have the, that immediately popped to my mind. It, it, Pied Piper of Prosciutto truly is a, a fitting label 
for what you do and inspiring people to both travel and eat. So I just thought that was spot yeah. on. Um, um, by the way, any comparison to Jonathan Gold is the ultimate compliment. He was an absolute hero and a great influence. And I got to know him. Uh, I loved uh, our arguments even, you know, it was so much fun. And, and he turned me on to so much, so many things, including this idea. He used his column every week, never to disparage a restaurant because he understood this is one guy's opinion. Why would I? And I, he understood the power that he had being the lead food critic of the LA times. So we only focused on if I'm going to be on once a week in a column, why not? I just point you to the good. That's a philosophy of life, isn't it? And so I've adopted that. You don't see me uh, say very many negative things. Maybe Absolutely. I'll complain about the napkin in, right. in the pizza restaurant in Buenos Aires, but only because that's funny. I love the pizza or you wouldn't see it. Right, exactly. The heart of your show is the cross-section of travel and food. Two industries that have been just devastated during yeah. COVID-19. Yeah. Um, can you just talk about your support of Jose Andres's uh, World Central Kitchen and Food Forward LA through the sale of somebody feed fill merchandise? Uh, you do what you can, right? I'm, I'm one of the lucky, lucky people. I don't need that income for that. Uh, whatever income I get goes uh, towards making the show itself and, and you know, helping other people. Uh, if food seems to be my brand, right? What better uh, charity to give to than Jose Andres's uh, World Central Kitchen. I, I don't think we need to explain to the listeners what they do, right? They, they, are, they are the first boots on the ground whenever there's a crisis, and including, including the crisis of long lines to vote that were, that were imposed on people. He was the first one to say, why don't we feed those people on the... So I created Somebody Feed the People during that time to feed the people. And it, mine was just a portal to get to the places like uh, Pizza to the Poles and, of course, World Central Kitchen. And uh, I, I even I, if you donate to World Central Kitchen through this portal, right. I match your donation. Right. I want because it's not. And now, obviously, people it's not just people online who need to be fed around the country, if not the world. So I've kept it going. So I implore people to go to somebody feed the people and, and give to world central kitchen. Uh, I give to that and also to uh, food forward, which is a wonderful organization. It's uh, the LA based one is probably expanding throughout the country and it's just uh, unused food and fruit uh, that get to the hungry. What's better than that? I didn't get to ask you this last year when we chatted, but I, I try to end every interview with it because it's always a fun question with a wide variety of answers. Um, what's your final meal? I've thought about this and I've talked about it even. I think I talked about it in the uh, London episode with Jay uh, Rayner, the great critic. Okay. I want, I think if it's my last meal and I'm, I'm assuming that I've lived a nice long life and I've had everything, right? I'm not being executed tomorrow. <laughs> so if I know I'm going to die and I've had a nice long life, I think my last meal should be childhood favorites. 
because first of all, it's comfort food. Right. And second of all, your childhood favorites, the idealized versions of those foods are the most thrilling and satisfying things that we ever eat. What do I mean? When you find the best pizza you ever had, it becomes your absolute favorite thing that you ever ate. When you find the best hot dog, the best hamburger, the best fried chicken, the best, uh, what I mean is childhood favorites. Right. Even, even if you, if I gave you right now the best peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you'd be so happy because, you know, just like in Ratatouille at the end where he, he tastes his mom's thing and is back to childhood. There's no more. There's no better feeling in life. It's all we do in life is chase that feeling of childhood. What gave us happiness in childhood? It always stays with us. And it's the most deeply resonant thing a human being can feel. Right. So those are going to be my things. And probably the last bite should be my mom's matzo balls just for that very reason. And then I take me, take me. I'm ready. Even though you're on the record as saying that cooking was not your mom's strength. She made a decent matzo ball soup. Sinker or floater? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to. Nothing in our family floats. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for your time. Bless beyond you. A, I hope to see you soon. I hope to see you in person. I hope I can take you up on that one day. And if you are, do get to LA, you're invited. Sounds good. Phil, thanks so much. Have an awesome weekend. You too, Brad. Take, Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Again, if you have not seen Somebody Feed Phil on Netflix, I uh, urge you to do so. Um, speaking of Netflix, um, before we get to our next interview, which is your conversation with a friend of Phil's, uh, Los Angeles chef Nancy Silverton, um, Another Netflix show that I know Christine and I both strongly recommend is called Chef's Table. And not only does that fit into this discussion today, because we are going to be featuring Christine's interview with Nancy Silverton, but if you'll recall on our last episode, or if you haven't listened, please do, um, Christine chatted with... David Gelb, who is the producer of Chef's Table on Netflix. And it's what I guess I would call a purist's food show. And it takes you into the mind and the processes and the creativity of that episode's one featured chef. And those chefs range from, you know, Nancy Silverton had an episode. Um, Dominique Crenn, who I believe you may be talking to at some point soon. Um, Dario Cicchini, the uh, legendary Tuscan uh, butcher who I had the pleasure of interviewing last year for Food Sided, um, Massimo Batura, a wide range of world-class award-winning chefs, each featured on an episode of Chef's Table. And it just takes you behind the scenes. And in Nancy's episode, and I know you get to this in, in your conversation with her so people hear it, um, there was a heavy emphasis on obsession and how she obsesses as a chef. And I would venture to say it's pretty safe to make a blanket statement that most chefs obsess about something in their kitchen and in their restaurants and in their preparation in different ways to different degrees. What thoughts do you have about just having talked to, to Nancy and then so many other chefs that you've talked to where obsession comes into play in their 
everyday life, their process, their, their presentation? I, I think any chef kind of has a quest to always strive for the next thing, the better thing, making it perfect, learning from the mistake. Um, it's not necessarily, oh, what's the next food trend or, oh, well, how am I going to impress someone else? But there is this desire to kind of keep learning. Whether or not that's an obsession, I'm not quite sure, but there is this idea of never becoming, never being stale, never being stagnant. So if for someone maybe who isn't at the same level as many of these highly successful chefs, I think everyone can relate to that concept or that desire to keep improving, to always want better, to always do more. Um, there are some people who maybe who take it to the extreme, to a negative level, but you know, there are many different phrases or many different concepts to how you want to approach it. But I don't think anyone's truly looking for perfection because, you know, there's a phrase that I hear sometimes like on Peloton, you know, we don't practice perfection, we practice progress. So we, you know, it's that idea of how can you move forward? And sometimes there are mistakes along the way. And those, those um, instances need to be embraced because we learn from the mistake and we move forward. But, you know, hey, if granted, I'm never going to get to the point where I'm going to spend years and years of my life searching for the ultimate way of making bread, but I am going to go, hmm, this batch of whatever I made, a muffin, a cake, uh, you have it. Let's, let's see how we make it better. Let's see how it can taste better. Or let's see how it's changed because of all these other things in my life. And I think that's something that anyone can relate to. And Nancy's La Brea Bakery in Los Angeles, when it first hit the scene, became the revolutionary, the, the trendsetter for bread and bakeries on the West coast, much like, uh, you know, we, you interviewed Wolfgang Puck on our last episode, much like Wolfgang Puck really started the, the farm to table, the open kitchen, so many different concepts that, that he was the pioneer for. That's what Nancy Silverton did with her La Brea bakery. But I mean, if, even if you look at that bread was, Oh, Hey, it's that thing on the table that makes you full while you're waiting for your meal. It's taking something that is simple, something that everyone understands and elevating it. And that's something that really good chefs do all the time, whether it's Wolfgang Puck and appreciating fresh local seasonal cuisine or Nancy Silverton's attention to bread or Jonathan Waxman and the humble chicken, roasted chicken. In all of those things, it's taking something that's well known, that's understood, and seeing it in a different light. And maybe and I think that's something that really great chefs do in an unexpected way that people learn to appreciate. Let's listen to your conversation with Nancy Silverton. <laughs> 
So I'm a little curious. I, I know that Italy holds a very special place in your heart. Why do you think that so many people are drawn to Italian food and how it makes them feel? You know, I think that the, the type of Italian food or the segment of Italian food that people are always drawn for, drawn to, I think, is pasta. When people think of Italy, they think pasta. And when they think pasta, I think that they think comfort. Well, even as like we look at some of uh, the dishes that you offer at your very various restaurants or and you go back through um, certain things that you are known for, many people, including famous chefs, are drawn to your, to your dishes and your cuisine because they seem to balance that lovely simplicity, but also celebrate the ingredients on the plate. How important is it to... Um, bring those fresh local ingredients to your um, to the table. You know, I think that it is key to a great dish. Key to a great dish is the quality of ingredients. Uh, and when you start big, you end big. Uh, and they don't have to be expensive ingredients either, but they have to be great. And the the perishables, the fresh produce has to be seasonal and it has to be well chosen and it has to be flavorful. And what's also great about, uh, about using great ingredients and seasonal ones is that most of the work is done for you. The cook in your kitchen, you just have to kind of finish it off, heat it up. Well, I, well, I would long to be able to say that the dishes I prepare, prepare are something that you just kind of heat up. I, I would, you know, almost, you know, say that many people are um, drawn to your cuisine and, and your dishes because you do have such an amazing palate and are able to kind of um, bring together all of those wonderful ingredients into a dish. Do you think that someone, you know, for the home cook at home, uh, do you think that they're like a palate, you know, a great palate can be honed over the years, can kind of be developed over time? Or is it something that just is a little bit innate in people? Well, I think it's something that's so personal. You know, I happen to like food that has aggressive flavors. And when I say aggressive, I mean that they're well-seasoned. I like foods that are very acidic. Um, and so that's kind of my taste, but that's not everybody's taste. You know, somebody else can eat it and think, oh, wow, that's way too strong for, you know, for me, or that has way too much flavor for me. But I do, I like, I like very, very flavorful food uh, and always have. And, and is that something that you see with food trends that that people are becoming more adaptive to that, to learning to appreciate um, a stronger flavor in a dish as opposed to, you know, years and years ago when everything was more muted? I don't know if that's really a, a trend or not. Um, uh, I mean, I can tell by the success of my restaurants that that there, there is an audience for my style. Um, but once again, it's not everybody's style, you know? Uh, and I think that people, when they come and eat at my various restaurants, 
they, um, I think what they get on their plate is, uh, is food that, uh, that they understand, you know, um, and I think that's important too. Now, if I had to say, is there a trend to food that you can understand? I think there might be a trend away from that. I think there might be a trend towards food that is very manipulated, that maybe is more complex and maybe is meant to be studied more than uh, satisfied. I'm, I'm not sure, but I think there are a lot of, especially younger cooks out there that are kind of striving to be able to um, to be able to uh, cook more foods that that um, that that are more manipulated than sort of the simple style that you'll find in in my restaurants. And oh, you know, it, it seems like even within your restaurants that you have a very strong sense of mentorship for younger cooks that are you know looking to. Uh, find their place within the food world. Why do you think that mentorship is important for the young chef as they start their culinary journey? Well, I think it's important for a young cook to, um, to sort of work with people that help to set their path because otherwise they cook chaotic food. But once I think they find the people in their career, and I'm not saying that the young cooks that start out with me stay for years and years and years, you know, that usually does not happen. But even the short amount of time that they spend, hopefully I can lead enough of impression that is helping to pave their path to what they eventually will become. Well, you used an interesting phrase saying chaotic food. What, what, does that kind of mean to you? Because I, I, I haven't quite heard that phrase before. Well, I, but I think you've eaten the food before. So maybe you haven't heard it in as a word, but I think you know when you eat food that's confused or chaotic, like you feel like you're eating it made by a cook that kind of doesn't have a voice or doesn't understand their voice. Just like anything else that's chaotic and confused, right? So, so if like I made like an analogy, or a book. Well, well, like if I made an analogy, say to, you know, even fashion in a way, is it kind of like that yes. concept of, I look in the mirror, I have too many things on my person. Maybe I should have edited it down in some way. Right. Editing is certainly important, super important. And, you know, when I work with cooks so often, when they present a dish, um, and in my mind right away is, okay, you need to edit because that's the thing that you need to, you know, to do. But I kind of try to talk them through that in a, in a more nurturing way than you need to throw some of that stuff away because you don't need it all. You know, you've got to keep what's important. But I think that, you know, when somebody has a vision, you know, so let's go back to fashion. You know, I mean, doesn't mean that you have to wear all black, right? Or all white. Um, but you know, when somebody just has put together some crazy outfit, right. And you can, uh, you could look at somebody else that's just as, uh, flashy and yet it works. And I think that that's kind of the difference or what I mean by chaotic food or confused food. When you were on chef's table, 
you, they, they started the program and you used the word obsession, but it seemed to me it was not obsession with a negative light, but more of like a quest, kind of like what uh, David Gelb says when, when he profiles a lot of his chefs on that, that he's seeking to tell an origin story and treats chefs almost like superheroes. So I'm curious, um, if you're going on a food quest, does that journey ever really end or is it just never. one that can- never ends, <laughs> never ends. And, that's, and, and that is the good and the bad of of obsession is that you never, it, it never ends. It's not finite. It's what keeps you going, you know? So you you mentioned earlier before we listened to your um, interview with Nancy Silverton, you brought up Jonathan Waxman and roast chicken, which is the perfect segue and sneak peek for the next episode of this food cast. Cause, cause that was good. Because we will be featuring your interview with Jonathan Waxman, as well as a conversation that I had um, very recently with Donatella Arpaia. Um, Roast chicken, any other tidbits from that conversation with Jonathan to uh, sort of leave some breadcrumbs for people so they join us in episode 14 for that conversation? Well, if you pay attention towards the end of the interview, he tells you the secret of how to make the perfect chicken on a big green egg. And I will honestly say, you should try it. Even if you don't have a big green egg and you just put it on the grill, basically kind of what he says is uh, um, a great chicken recipe that anyone can master and everyone will ask for more. And so some people who are listening may not know who Jonathan Waxman is, and we'll go into greater detail next episode, but um, he is revered by fellow chefs. He's Bobby Flay's mentor. Um, I think Bobby Flay got his start by knocking on uh, Jonathan Waxman's uh, back door of his restaurant and, and asking to work in his kitchen for him. And he became his mentor and so many other chefs that you'll see on Iron Chef and Chopped and Top Chef um, consider him to be either their role model or their mentor. So uh, he holds a a pretty important place in the chef kingdom. I mean, Aron Sanchez calls him his father figure. Tom Colicchio got um, his start through Jonathan Waxman. Everyone kind of calls him the, the godfather or the Jedi there's a variety of different adjectives that have been attached to him, but I will say I've had the pleasure of speaking to him a couple times and seeing him at food festivals and different events. He is a warm, genuine, thoughtful man. And he, you know, he's a former musician and he's lived a very full life, but in general, he just, wants everyone to enjoy food and togetherness. And that's one of the best things you can say. And we will hear that interview in our next episode. So hopefully you'll join us for that. And my conversation with Donatella Arpaio, where we go behind the scenes of Iron Chef America and some other fun topics, but that's next time. Um, We hope you enjoyed this episode and our conversations with Phil Rosenthal. Make sure you 
get on to Netflix and enjoy the first four seasons of Somebody Feed Phil so that you're priming the pump for when seasons five and six ultimately premiere. Um, highly recommended. And you will get addicted to his theme song, I promise. Um, as well as Christine's conversation with Nancy Silverton. Um, and you can find her many places, including on her um own episode of chef's table that David Gelb did. So that all ties together in a nice little neat package. And that's probably a good place to put a wrap on this episode. Christine, as always, it has been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure, Brad. And it, you know, Friday the 13th, should we have 13 grapes today before the clock strikes? I was going to ask, are you going to, does that mean you're going to have 13 glasses of Prosecco? Uh, That's a, that's one too many. I I think. So you'll stop it. You'll you'll stop at 12. Well, you know, maybe we'll just stop at the one and (laughs) see what happens next time. So when we reconvene for episode 14, we will we will find out how many glasses of Prosecco um, Christine had today to celebrate National Prosecco Day. And that will be our magic number for that episode for episode 14. Until then, I am Brad Kramer. Um, My friend is Christine Struble and Christine, we'll see you next time. Bye, Brad. Take care. Bye-bye. May I have some more? Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.